Um, I'd like to welcome everyone to tonight's connected conversation. My name is David Pettyjohn. <clears throat> Excuse me, got a little choked up. David Pettyjohn. I am the director here at the Idaho Humanities Council. If you're not familiar with the work of the IHC, I encourage you to go to our website, www.idahohumanities.org. We will be um, taking questions later in uh, tonight's program. So I encourage you, if you have a question, you can use the chat feature, or you can also use the Q&A feature, the button, I'm just gonna start over. <laughs> the button is located at the bottom of your screen. It is my wonderful pleasure to, to welcome tonight our two esteemed uh, panelists, Dr. Lisa Brady, and Dr. Bill Tsutsui. Uh, Bill and I, uh, I met Bill, we serve on the Federation of State Humanities Council Board, and I was actually uh, sent an article uh, by the president of the Federation uh, that I learned a lot about Bill and his interest in tonight's topic. So I reached out to see if he would be willing to speak, and he has generously agreed to do so. But to learn more about Bill, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Lisa Brady. Uh, Dr. Brady is a professor of history at Boise State University and the incoming chair of the department. And uh, Dr. Brady has also served as the chair of the Idaho Humanities Council. So welcome, and Lisa, I will turn it over to you. Excellent, thank you so much, David. This is such an honor and pleasure to be able to introduce my good friend, my mentor, and my colleague, Dr. William Bill Tsitsui. Uh, Bill has an impressive resume with degrees from Harvard, Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar, and Princeton, where he earned his PhD. One might think that with such a pedigree, Bill would be entitled to a bit of pride, but he is instead humble, approachable, and downright likable, as you will discover in his talk tonight. This may be why he has been so successful and in such high demand. He currently serves on the boards of directors of the Association for Asian Studies, the US-Japan Council, and as David mentioned, the Federation of State Humanities Councils. He was recently appointed to the Japan-United States Friendship Commission. I can't think of a better person to serve on that board. As you'll see again, he's friendly, he's wonderful. Bill has served in many leadership roles, including history department chair and executive director of the Confucius Institute at the University of Kansas, which is where Bill and I first got to know each other. He has been Dean of the Dedman College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Southern Methodist University, and recently president of Hendricks College, a top tier liberal arts college uh, located in Conway, Arkansas, which apparently is totally underwater at present. <laughs> <laughs> this coming year, however, Bill is going to change locations. He will take his energy, his acumen, and his good humor to um, another liberal arts, excellent liberal arts institution, Ottawa University, which has campuses both in Kansas and Arizona, where he will serve as president and CEO. In all his spare time, Bill has managed to author eight books, author or edit eight books, including Manufacturing Ideology, Scientific Management in 20th Century Japan, 
and Japanese popular culture and globalization, which is a big favorite of mine. It's slim, it's exciting, it's wonderful. I highly recommend it. And his 2004 book, which will be in part um, the basis for his talk tonight, Godzilla on My Mind, 50 Years of the King of Monsters. Um, I've read it numerous times. I've assigned it to classes. Everyone loves it. Again, I highly recommend this book. The New York Times called his book a cult classic. So Bill, I will turn it over to you. I am thrilled to hear your talk and excited to talk with you about it afterwards. Take it away. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. You know, you're a one-person marketing team uh, for my uh, publications. I really uh, appreciate that. Well, it is such a pleasure to be with you all today and to be at least virtually back in beautiful Idaho. I am looking forward one of these days to uh, uh, being there in person uh, once again. Uh, I cannot thank David Pettyjohn enough for asking me to speak as part of the Connected Conversation series. As I am a huge fan of the public humanities, and of all the wonderful state humanities councils across the country, which are doing such a marvelous job during this infernal pandemic of keeping us all engaged and thinking and building community. And it is just the greatest joy imaginable for me to be sharing a Zoom screen with the one and only Lisa Brady, who I knew way back when at the University of Kansas uh, and who we all realized was something special and was going to do great things in her life and career. And of course, it is always nice to be proven right uh, about those hunches. I wish I could claim to be one of Lisa's teachers, uh, but the fact of the matter is that I have learned far more from her than the other way uh, around. Thank you, Lisa, uh, uh, for that lovely introduction and for being part of the conversation. I'm really looking forward to that. Now on to the main event. Let's talk Godzilla. Well, I first encountered Godzilla when I was seven or eight years old. Let me see if I can manage my screen here. Yes, okay. Is my sharing still working? I hope so. Yes. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a Saturday afternoon in Bryan, Texas, where I grew up. I was lying on my stomach on the blue shag carpeting in my parents' bedroom. Hold on, I'm gonna share this again. I was lying on the blue shag carpeting in my parents' bedroom in front of our big old Zenith TV set in its fake wood grain case. It was tuned to channel 39 from Houston and the creature double feature was on. I remember Godzilla appearing on the screen and I remember falling in love. I wanted to be Godzilla. I wanted to be huge. I wanted to be uh, uh, able to knock down skyscrapers and bat fighter planes uh, out of the sky. I wanted to make chemical plants explode. Godzilla was and is a great fit kitty fantasy, but Godzilla was more than that to me. As a chubby Japanese-American boy in a small Texas town with a total of two Japanese-American families, Godzilla was more than just a third grader's Saturday afternoon power trip. Godzilla became an important source of my personal identity. My friends and classmates at school, needless to say, didn't know a lot about Japan other than Pearl Harbor, and I guarantee you they'd never heard of the Japanese-American internment but they all thought Godzilla movies were pretty cool. 
And so I embrace Godzilla as something about Japan and my heritage that I could relate to and be proud of. I'm just guessing that most of you don't think of Godzilla as an ethnic hero, but he was to me. And here's a photo of as close as I've gotten to actually becoming Godzilla, Halloween 1972, in a costume made by my mother and grandmother, just about to head off to the haunted house at Davy Crockett Elementary School. So why tell this story? Well, partly because it gives me a chance to indulge in a bit of nostalgia, but more importantly, because it shows nicely, I think, how Godzilla is more than just a series of laughably cheesy films featuring an actor in a rubber suit walking through toy cities. Sure, Godzilla is a global pop culture icon, star of 33 live action films made in Japan and Hollywood, the oldest and longest film franchise in world history. And sure, Godzilla is fodder for The Simpsons and has become part of our language through the Zilla suffix, and is the subject of more internet memes and New Yorker cartoons than anybody can count. Godzilla is lighthearted and silly and fun and childish, but Godzilla can, of course, also be serious and meaningful, offering commentary on current events, revealing insights on Japan and its post-war history, and providing an imaginative outlet for some of our deepest and darkest fears. On a personal level, Godzilla can be a lifelong friend and an unlikely source of ethnic identity. And up there on the silver screen, Godzilla affords us a valuable perspective on the people and the cultures that created the films, as well as a window into the obsessions, the weaknesses, and the deepest anxieties of all of us who watched and enjoyed the series over the decades. We can learn a lot, it turns out, from Godzilla about Japan, about what scares us, and about ourselves. So let's spend the next 30 minutes or so reflecting on Godzilla, since the timing is great with the new legendary Godzilla versus Kong having just opened a few weeks ago. So what's the deal with this overgrown radioactive lizard that seems to love nothing better than destroying Tokyo? How did this global icon emerge from the imaginary of post-war Japan? Why does this cinematic monster continue to stir our imaginations and attract audiences? Perhaps most importantly, how has the Godzilla series addressed the anxieties of moviegoers in Japan and internationally since the 1950s? From the nuclear fear of the Cold War era to the environmental concerns of the 60s and 70s, to the economic worries at the turn of the millennium. And what role might Godzilla play today as we all struggle with proliferating natural disasters like the earthquake, tsunami, and meltdown that hit Japan in 2011, wildfires in the West, hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, and of course, with the current global pandemic. Now, one of the characteristics of modern societies, it seems to me, and to many cultural commentators is a sense of ambient fear, a pervasive anxiety that saturates daily life. Sometimes this fear is widely discussed and publicly agonized over, but much of the time people try to avoid speaking of it and try to push it into the background of their minds. 
In Japan in the 1950s, when Godzilla was born, this anxiety derived from the unresolved legacies of World War II, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and from the threat of nuclear annihilation in the Cold War. In the world today, and especially in America, there are more ambient fears than I can list, starting with COVID-19, of course, but including income and healthcare insecurity and concerns over issues like democratic governance and racial equity. Such anxieties often manifest themselves as a widespread fascination with monsters, a fixation that is born of the twin desire to name and give a face and form to fears that are often abstract or invisible, like radiation and viruses, and to domesticate, control, and imaginatively overcome, and therefore disempower those things that threaten us. In short, monsters like Godzilla help us make our fears more concrete and thus more manageable. Seeing a giant lizard on a movie screen or reading about Dracula in a novel or hearing about dragons in a medieval tale allow us to have the cathartic experience of imagining some of our greatest terrors, but also the reassuring and liberating experience of imagining those monsters being controlled and ultimately defeated. Let's go back then to Godzilla's origins. So in 1952, the Hollywood classic King Kong, originally made in 1933, was re-released around the world and was a smash hit, including in Japan. Hollywood saw the potential in giant monsters. So the very next year, Warner Brothers made The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, which if you've seen it is about a dinosaur that swims up the Hudson River to spawn and ends up being barbecued at Coney Island. Also turned out to be a big blockbuster. Japanese film studios have never been shy about stealing a good idea. So Japanese movie makers began work on their own creature feature. But Godzilla was not just created from commercial ambitions at the box office. It was very much ripped from the headlines and conditioned by superpower politics and atomic age fears. So in March of 1954, a Japanese fishing vessel called the Lucky Dragon Number no. 5 strayed into the US nuclear bomb testing zone near Bikini Atoll. The crew was exposed to massive amounts of radiation in the Castle Bravo test, the largest H-bomb test to date. One crew member died and uh, some of the irradiated tuna on the ship made it onto the market in Japan. The United States, as was its custom with nuclear tests uh, in those days, denied everything, never apologized, paid only token restitution to the families. But this, of course, was huge news in Japan. It was called the latest atomic bombing of Japan in the media, especially, of course, since the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki remained very fresh memories. Godzilla was thus very much born of the atomic bombings of 1945 and reflected Japan's collective trauma still raw in the 1950s at those horrifying events, at defeat in World War II, and at being occupied after the war by the United States for seven years. Now, Godzilla was apparently the brainchild of a producer at Japan's Toho Studios uh, named Tanaka Tomoyuki. He imagined the story of a dinosaur survivor of the Jurassic period 
that is rendered monstrous by US H-bomb testing in the South Pacific and ends up attacking Tokyo. To make his picture, Tanaka recruited absolutely top talent since he intended it to be a very serious politically charged movie. So for special effects, he hired a real wizard named Tsuburaya Eiji, who had done amazing wartime propaganda films using miniatures. He really mastered uh, that genre uh, of creating special effects uh, using miniatures. And for director, Tanaka hired a guy named Honda Ishido, who was personally committed to the anti-nuclear message uh, of the film. Uh, Honda uh, had served in the Japanese army in China during the war. And as was common, uh, when he was repatriated to Japan in 1945, the Americans made sure he passed through Hiroshima to see how total Japan's vic uh, defeat was and uh, the power uh, of American atomic technology. And that had a lifelong impact on him. He became a committed pacifist. He was also a very dedicated professional. Uh, uh, in addition to making uh, a number of Godzilla movies, he later would serve as an assistant director for the great Japanese filmmaker Kurosawa Akira uh, and collaborated on films you may have seen, samurai epics uh, like Kagemusha. Now the name Gojira, which was later rendered into English as Godzilla, was allegedly a nickname given to an overweight press agent at Toho Studios and was a combination of two Japanese words, gorira, gorilla, and kujira, or whale. Uh, and that rendered uh, gojira. Uh, uh, it was then brought into English as Godzilla. Now, Toho Studios invested a great deal uh, in that first film, 60 million yen, almost three times the budget of the average Japanese movie uh, at the time, although far less, one should note, than Hollywood would have spent uh, on a run-of-the-mill B-movie those days. Gojira opened on November 3rd, 1954. Box office receipts were strong and its popularity as well as its export potential were such that a franchise was born. The American version of this first film called Godzilla King of the Monsters opened in the United States in 1956. It was a cleverly re-edited version of the Japanese original with the unfortunate addition of Raymond Burr as a voyeuristic American reporter who witnesses the destruction of Tokyo. This version was considerably altered from the original Japanese film. Some have called it censored or even whitewashed, notably in that all references to World War II, all mention of the atomic bombs, and anything that could be considered even vaguely critical of the United States was removed. Another interesting fact is that the American version was subsequently subtitled in Japanese and released in Japan, where it was in turn very successful. So imagine that original Japanese film edited by Hollywood, 20 minutes of the original film left on the cutting room floor, in comes Raymond Burr. That Hollywood altered version is then subtitled in Japanese, released in Japan, and it does very well at the box office too. Now, Gojira is a dark, thoughtful, and politically charged film made for adult audiences, simmering with implicit criticism of the United States, repressed feelings of Japanese pride and nationalism, and anxiety over nuclear testing and the threat of nuclear war. It masterfully played upon the audience's fears of the mounting Cold War 
and the lingering psychological and physical scars of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the firebombings of Japanese cities during World War II. Many Japanese viewers at the time left theaters in tears. It was cathartic and therapeutic for a nation still struggling to make sense of its recent history and a world divided by superpower rivalries, where Japan was poor and vulnerable and caught between America and the Soviet Union. Gojira is surprisingly rich in meaning, especially as a movie about a giant angry lizard. And even though we may chuckle a little bit at the special effects today, they really were state of the art for the time. Gojira is truly a classic. And if you haven't seen it yet, it should be at the top of your watch list. Now, after that marvelous 1954 original, however, as you may know, the quality of the series declined quite rapidly. The serious message of the first offering was quickly jettisoned for more crowd-pleasing fare, and the age of the target audience declined steadily. By the 1970s, eight-year-olds were the main market for giant monster pictures. The films degenerated into big-time wrestling and rubber suits, and the scripts and special effects were remarkably cheesy, though at the same time quite appealingly campy. Who could not laugh at the King of the Monsters flying on his tail or teaching his son how to blow radioactive smoke rings or playing volleyball using a giant boulder with a gargantuan mutant lobster. This change in tone in the movies was due not just to shifting audience demographics, but also due to changes in Japan over time. Japan in the 1950s was an impoverished developing nation still recovering from defeat economically and psychologically. By the 1960s, the Japanese economy was booming and people were optimistic, increasingly affluent, and not so interested in seeing their nation destroyed by Godzilla and the parade of other giant creatures devised by Toho to battle him, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Rodan, and many, many others. So the movies became more lighthearted and Godzilla was repositioned as a defender of Japan, a heroic figure, rather than as a vengeful monster intent on destroying the country. Godzilla has continued to evolve, of course, over the decades, reflecting the ongoing transitions in post-war Japanese society, in perceptions of where Japan stood in the world, in the shifting makeup of Japanese movie-going audiences, and in the development of the Japanese movie industry, which has weathered some very, very tough times financially. Remarkably, despite the changes in tone and market for the Godzilla films, not to mention the appearance of Godzilla, which also morphed considerably over the years, the franchise continued to engage regularly with the fears of audiences and timely issues of the day, mostly ones of importance in Japan, but also many that resonated with global moviegoers. The 1954 Gojira was, as I've mentioned, very politically charged and dealt with the legacies of the atomic bombs and the fears of nuclear holocaust with a directness and a kind of visceral impact that was very uncommon in Japanese media at that time. By the 1960s, as Japan recovered economically from World War II and from the darkness of the 1950s, the issues addressed included political corruption, long a big issue in Japan, and the rampant commercialization of Japanese society, 
which underwent a consumption boom as the country grew wealthier. In the 1970s, among the issues that the series took up were school bullying, another long-standing issue in Japan, and most famously, the pollution problem and environmental awareness. And if you have not seen Godzilla versus the Smog Monster yet, you are culturally deprived. It is psychedelic and crazy and surprisingly effective politically, and I recommend it to you highly. From the 1980s through 2004, a wide variety of matters were treated, sometimes superficially, sometimes more deeply. The nuclear issue returned, as you can see from Godzilla holding a nuclear reactor there, as did environmental concerns. Remilitarization and Japanese nationalism came up, memories of World War II, and interestingly, Japan's wealth and arrogance in the world. Tanaka Tomoyuki, the producer who'd started the series, once said, and I quote, Japan is rich and people can buy whatever they want. But what's behind that wealth? Nothing very spiritual. Everyone's so concerned with the material and then Godzilla comes and rips it all apart. I suspect that's good for us all to see. So Godzilla even became something of a conscience for a wealthy, increasingly self-satisfied Japan. Although many of the movies in the series were not terribly timely or topical at all, what is impressive is the way in which Godzilla's makers regularly tapped into issues of widespread concern in Japan and globally to keep Godzilla something more substantial than just a big vengeful monster or a big heroic one. Even in more recent years, as Godzilla has leapt the Pacific and been taken up by filmmakers in Hollywood, the monster has continued to mine the headlines for material and address our collective fears. The 1998 TriStar production, marketed under the classy slogan, Size Does Matter, has been panned by most Godzilla fans, myself included, and perhaps not surprisingly for a movie featuring an escapee from Jurassic Park and Ferris Bueller was not a particularly thoughtful or politically engaged entry in the series. The most recent films are very different stories, however. The latest picture from Toho in Japan uh, is 2016's Shin Godzilla, a remarkably interesting film which dealt with the triple disasters of 2011 and the Japanese government's feeble response. Another film really worth seeing, by the way. And that brings us finally to the latest Hollywood offerings, the suite of Godzilla films in the MonsterVerse franchise from Legendary Pictures. Now the first Legendary offering, Godzilla in 2014, was successful commercially and critically, channeling the best of the Japanese Godzilla series and the best of early 21st century Hollywood movie making. It had a message, it had a heroic Godzilla, and it spoke to timely issues. Specifically, it addressed the human ordeals of natural disasters like the San Francisco earthquake, Katrina, and the 2011 quake, tsunami, and nuclear accident in Japan. The film did not use a man in a rubber suit to play Godzilla, which I really love uh, personally. And while I might have preferred a slightly trimmer monster, especially as CGI meant there didn't need to be a human inside a bulky costume, it did have great special effects and the kind of pacing and drama that Hollywood really does so well in action pictures. 
Legendary's second movie, Godzilla King of the Monsters from 2019, was less successful in many respects, notably in its ham-fisted and harebrained attempts to address the threat of climate change, long an issue which I felt Godzilla needed to tangle with. I am interested to hear what you all thought about Legendary's third try with Godzilla, the long-anticipated Godzilla versus Kong. I hope that most of you saw it because while the human action was pretty much extraneous, I thought the big ape whomping on the big lizard and both of them whomping on a big robot was all pretty darn cool. One observation I would make about Hollywood's Godzilla movies is that the character of the monsters they present is very different from that of the Japanese franchise. Specifically, the American Godzillas, with the possible exception of the monsters in Godzilla versus Kong, seem more like animals or other life forms, driven by deeply programmed genetic or biological urges, rather than like the more human monster presented by Toho. Thus, the TriStar creature is a mother impelled by a profound maternal instinct, while the legendary Godzilla is motivated not by any identification with America, but by a deep, natural, primal compulsion to battle another form of giant monster, the Mutos in the first legendary film, for dominance. American filmmakers seem to want to see giant creatures animated by a kind of biological logic, rather than having anything approaching a real personality or character or soul. And this kind of narrow literalism carries over visually as well, as Hollywood has, of course, stressed special effects that are much more sophisticated and detailed and realistic than what Toho's man in a rubber suit could ever achieve. Finally, one aspect of the American Godzilla features that has struck and annoyed me is the way in which they all rewrite the origins of Godzilla deviating from the story established in the Toho franchise to deflect blame for creating the monster away from the Cold War and above all, away from US nuclear testing in the South Pacific. So let's go back to 1998 in the TriStar film, the Matthew Broderick Godzilla. If you're not gonna pin the blame on America, well, who are you gonna pin it on? Well, maybe you could try the Soviet Union, but there's someone even more fun uh, than the Russians. If you can't blame America, blame the French, okay? So Godzilla in that movie is created by French nuclear testing in Polynesia. And that's why we have the annoying Jean Renault character running all over that film. 2014 Legendary started a whole new Genesis story for Godzilla and giant monsters uh, in general. Remember, in uh, uh, the Japanese version, Godzilla is this dinosaur swimming around at the bottom of the ocean, rendered huge and monstrous uh, by American H-bomb testing. In Legendary's version, the world is hollow and is actually filled uh, with a variety of giant monsters. And during the 1950s, these giant monsters start popping out of the Earth's core like popcorn, and they start appearing in the South Pacific. The nations of the world are horrified by this, of course, but they do not want to uh, upset the people of the world by telling them about it. So they keep it secret. In this situation, America decides to use nuclear weapons 
to control the monsters popping out of the Earth's crust. Uh, so they drop weapons uh, in the South Pacific to knock back Godzilla back down. They tell the world they're testing H-bombs uh, down there. Uh, but really, uh, it really is there, uh, a kind of humanitarian effort uh, to control uh, this uh, uh, monstrous force uh, coming uh, to get the world. And of course, in this process, America is blameless. Let me finish up because I've been talking a long time already. I'm eager to hear your comments and to uh, chat with Lisa. Let me finish up by reflecting a little on the meaning of Godzilla in a time of pandemic. The well-known writer Mike Davis has long described lethal viruses as monsters. His 2005 book on the avian flu in Asia was called The Monster at Our Door. With the appearance of COVID-19, he extended the metaphor and titled an updated version of the book released last year, The Monster Enters. It is a bit hard to imagine a microscopic virus as a monster. And of course, people and filmmakers faced the same problem after 1945, when another invisible threat, nuclear radiation, appeared on the scene as a similar challenge to human existence. Some would argue this was the case with electricity as well at a much earlier time when jolts of voltage were unfamiliar and clearly dangerous and profoundly frightening to people. Frankenstein was one of the creatures born of a creative and psychic need to give shape to our fears of electricity. And Godzilla, along with cinematic creatures like the giant ants in them, were physical manifestations of radiation invisible but deadly, and with the dawn of atomic weaponry, gigantic in scale and sweeping in impact. I am sure there will be monsters created and Godzilla may well fight them in future movies that give a tangible shape to the menace of an unseeable novel coronavirus. This brings us back finally to the question of why the world still loves Godzilla after all these decades and why the monster is seemingly more popular today than ever before. On the most basic level, Godzilla is just plain fun. The exuberance, the cheesiness, the cathartic nature of the destruction, all are just enjoyable to watch whether you are six or 60. Godzilla is the outrageous guy that breaks all the rules and gets away with it. The walking disaster who leaves a trail of devastation behind him and inspires not just fear and loathing, but also admiration, awe, and an odd tingle of delight. But Godzilla also has a serious side. And I think one reason why we continue responding so strongly to him is because he has functioned as a cinematic conscience for viewers in Japan and globally since World War II. Godzilla's very presence, the disruption he causes to the status quo, and the existential threat the monster poses to our lifestyles, our comforts, our assumptions, and our complacency keeps us asking questions we know we need to keep asking about issues like the environment, war, nuclear energy, arrogance, prosperity, technology, and now, of course, biosecurity, globalization, and the appropriate reach of governments during moments of crisis. Godzilla is, of course, not the only gargantuan creature on movie screens these days, as the whole genre of kaiju or giant monster movies is booming, 
perhaps more so now than at any time since the 1950s or 1960s. So think Cloverfield, Pacific Rim, Kong, Skull Island, and even quirky treatments like Colossal. Maybe this is nostalgia, perhaps like the Marvel Universe films. Perhaps it's our need to keep ratcheting up what excites and scares us with ever better special effects, ever more cinematic destruction, ever larger movie heroes and villains. Maybe it is catharsis in an age of disasters and terrorism and pandemics, just like the Japanese felt back in 1954 when Gojira came out, thinking about World War II and the threat of nuclear apocalypse. Maybe it reflects a sense of helplessness on the part of individual people facing a hostile and unpredictable world that they feel unable to control or change, not unlike what the audiences who watched Gojira felt at the volatile, uncertain start of the Cold War. In the end though, I feel that what makes Godzilla so compelling for so many and so significant, not just for Japanese culture or American culture, but for global culture goes somehow beyond the movie monster's longevity, ubiquity, topical relevance, and sentimental appeal. Godzilla distracts us and makes us laugh as entertainment is meant to do. Godzilla challenges us to think and feel in ways that pop culture so seldom does. And the Godzilla films shine with a profound and genuine optimism that we all need more of at a uniquely complex, unsettled, and anxiety-ridden time. In the Godzilla series, movie after movie, human society endures. Tokyo gets miraculously rebuilt, and the King of the Monsters returns once again from the sea. This essential optimism, this faith in progress and in the resilience of human society, was important in the 1950s when Godzilla helped Japan and the world recover from the nightmares of the atom bombs and remains powerful even today in the wake of more recent tragedies to hit Japan and to threaten the entire world. On some level, Godzilla is just a man in a rubber suit, but I hope you'll agree with me that when all is said and done, the king of the monsters is truly so much more. Thank you all so much. I am going to stop sharing now. And I look forward uh, uh, to your questions and comments. Thank you so much, Bill. Lisa, we'll turn it over to you to ask the first couple questions. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, Bill, as I said earlier, I have read your book a number of times. And even so, I was furiously scribbling notes and new ideas. And, and so I'm, I'm always so um, excited to learn from you. Um, one of the, the big things that I took from today's talk is the idea of the earth as a giant monster egg. I love that. <laughs> I just find that absolutely fascinating. The earth is giver to life, all life, um, and yet we still must control it. And as an environmental historian, of course, that resonates with me and, and everything that I study and think about. So thank you for bringing yet another layer of life to the earth, um, to me. Um, so I'll start with a fairly serious question. Um, you had mentioned uh, that 
pop culture can oftentimes be written off as sort of superficial or just um, sort of window dressing um, to sort of touch on things and entertain us. But you also mentioned that Godzilla is much, much more than that. And in your book, you recount a story of giving a talk to a group of fifth graders in a small town in Kansas. And um, it's a wonderful story where you talk about the exuberance of these children and knowing that, you know, some of the questions are going to be, what does he weigh? Um, <laughs> how big is Godzilla? All these things. And then you get this question by one boy, and, and I'll quote the question here. When watching the old Godzilla movies, did Americans enjoy seeing all those Japanese people die? And it's a very sombering question. And I think about what you've talked about here with um, Godzilla's connections to uh, fears about nuclear annihilation, about fears of environmental destruction. And his question was as profound then, and it has resonance now. And I, I wonder, um, what might we learn from Godzilla today, um, especially considering recent attacks against members of Asian American and Pacific Islander communities? How, how can we learn from Godzilla today? You know, it's pretty remarkable, Lisa. That's literally decades ago that I was in that fifth grade school room in Carbondale, Kansas. Uh, but I remember it like it was yesterday, uh, because uh, as you might tell from just listening to me here, I am seldom speechless. Uh, but when that young boy asked me that uh, question, uh, it really, I had never once uh, in watching those films my whole life, loving those films, I had never once considered something like that. That had not crossed my mind. And so sometimes from the mouth of babes come these profound truths and things that are truly horrifying. But now every time I watch the movies, this is going through my mind. And I think especially in this current moment when we're sensitized as we have never been before uh, to uh, 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 some of the struggles of Asian Americans uh, in our society and especially anti-Asian violence, we have to consult the fact that all of us who have grown up uh, in this country have been fed a diet of stereotypes about Asians and Asian Americans from before we can remember uh, that have uh, created uh, uh, the kind of worldview uh, and a kind of assumptions uh, uh, about Asians and Asian Americans that it is hard to get away from. So if you go back uh, to those Godzilla movies, the kid is exactly right, right? You know, uh, um, uh, there is something about this not taking place in our country, but taking place to Japanese people that makes the violence and the loss of life more palatable uh, to audiences. It is more acceptable to see not us uh, killed in these cases. Also, if you think about it in those Godzilla movies, the people are inevitably structured as smaller, okay? So they're diminutive as we tend to think uh, of Asian Americans uh, and they are sort of uh, helpless. You know, what is the response of a Japanese crowd to seeing a monster? They run in fear and they scream. And I have a friend named Greg Flugfelder at Columbia University who has studied Godzilla posters extensively. And he compares Japanese Godzilla posters to American and European Godzilla posters, and it is much more common to have small fleeing people in American and European Godzilla movie posters than in Japanese ones. Uh, this clearly was part of the appeal of the films, uh, was seeing these 
uh, you know, this fear uh, on the part of other people uh, as part of them too. But then just think about that whole process of adapting the films uh, for showing in America, dubbing of the films, right? You know, uh, uh, for most people, I think the two abiding uh, characteristics of Godzilla films are the cheesy special effects and the cheesy dubbing, right? And it just creates this impression that the voices coming out of Asian mouths are humorous, they're badly accented, they don't match the lips, and they're not perfect English. And so it makes you discount uh, what Asians say uh, from the very beginning and think it is humorous uh, on some level. And so, you know, I think this, you know, I hate to say it, but the Godzilla movies have shaped how we as a society have come to view uh, uh, being Japanese, being Asian, uh, and being Asian American. And it continues in the most recent film. Uh, if you have seen Godzilla versus Kong, you will notice at the end, and it is a it is intended to be a heartwarming, uh, uh, happy ending uh, for the film. I won't ruin it if you haven't seen it. You will not be surprised though to here in the process, Hong Kong gets absolutely destroyed. And even as uh, we are waxing poetical about monsters and the world being saved uh, and so forth, you have to realize hundreds of thousands of people are probably dead uh, in this scene at the end. And yet there is nary a thought for them uh, in, the, in the film's narrative. It's just fascinating when we think about how these um, these monster movies, humans are byproducts of them in many ways, and and sort of the the um, what's the term uh, collateral damage yeah. to mm -hmm. the larger yeah. fears, and and I do think it, it ties right into what you were talking about as um, these big monsters representing our fears. I think we do um, tend to think of ourselves as powerless against them. And certainly we've, um, I think many of us have felt powerless against the current pandemic, against um, nuclear radiation, against mm -hmm. uh, global climate change, all of these things. And so these monsters um, really do tend to personify these, personify isn't the right word, although <laughs> unless we go back to the original um, movies where it is a man in a rubber suit. Um, <laughs> So it's just, it's fascinating to think about how these, these movies that we think of as kitschy and, and perhaps silly really are so much more complicated, complex, and tied into um, sort of the social milieu uh, in which they were made. You know, they capture the modern condition in many ways, uh, I think, and that's their staying power, right? That's why, you know, almost 75 years after uh, that first film, we are still addicted uh, to Godzilla movies. So I, I, we have quite a few questions. Uh, so uh, I, I will start with um, what themes or subjects would you like the next two or three Godzilla films to focus on? And is there any possibility for a true US-Japan collaboration in making of future Godzilla films? So, I, I, On that final point, I really wish there was, you know? I would love to see the best of Japanese filmmaking and the best of Hollywood filmmaking come together and work collaboratively on Godzilla. I personally don't think it's gonna happen uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. I can't imagine sitting through all the uh, meetings that would be necessary to make this uh, possible, but I think it would be fascinating. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I think the recent films have been really thoughtful in most cases. Uh, the Shin Godzilla from Japan was great. It really was uh, 
uh, a politically engaged film about Japan today. It really, uh, I wrote a review of it where I said it should be called Godzilla versus the establishment uh, because it really was Godzilla taking on the sort of sclerotic uh, uh, political uh, dynasties running Japan and saying, we need a change in generations. We need to really uh, revolutionize uh, this country. There's a sort of a call to action uh, there. And as I said, the American, uh, uh, the first uh, legendary Godzilla film uh, was really great, I think too, in wrestling with this issue of natural disasters. It is inevitable, I think, that Godzilla is gonna have to take on the pandemic Pandemic, rather than Godzilla fighting the COVID monster, which is, it'd be a good cheesy movie perhaps, you know, uh, but I would love to see a monster movie where the appearance of a giant monster does not cause society to come together to fight the creature, but instead causes society to fragment, you know, and where there are lots of people out there saying, well, there isn't actually a giant monster. That's a Hollywood creation, you know, uh, and they're just trying to control us uh, through the stories of this uh, uh, creature uh, running loose. I think you could do some very creative things that are less perhaps uh, about monsters and more perhaps about how humans respond uh, to anxiety uh, and uh, to crisis. So uh, another attendee has this question. You spoke briefly about the different ways that Japanese and American films portray monsters. One more is compassionate and soulful, the other is driven by biological impulse. Could you elaborate more on this and what would you attribute this difference to? You know, that's a really, really uh, uh, great question. And I am not sure why uh, uh, American filmmakers are tied uh, to this uh, 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 sort of idea uh, that animals are animals and uh, uh, should always act uh, like animals. It might simply go back uh, to the very first film that really kicked off the monster on the loose, the giant monster genre, King Kong, right? Uh, where uh, the narrative works very well in that movie. That uh, King Kong is this beast from Africa uh, that is stolen out of the jungle uh, and then uh, 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 sort of plays out uh, 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 sort of uh, 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 as it would if you took uh, a, a, a creature uh, and let it loose uh, in the city, you know, with anger, uh, uh, with fear, with a desire to bond uh, with someone uh, and so forth. And it might well be that, that that just set the tone in American uh, movies. What I'm struck with though, looking at, at the original Japanese film uh, is how uh, Godzilla really has a soul uh, in that film. And if you have seen the film, I'm gonna ask you to think back, is there any way you could watch that film and not feel sorry at the end when the monster is killed, you know? Uh, because at the end of that movie, you realize the only victims aren't the people of Tokyo. The monster is a victim too. The monster didn't ask to be irradiated, right? The monster is mad because he was irradiated, okay? But that wasn't uh, his choice. And you feel sympathy, therefore, that at the end, uh, he ends up being uh, sacrificed uh, as well. Part of that, I think, goes back to the whole nature of monster culture in Japan. Japan has a very, very rich tradition of monsters. Uh, and one of the things that's special about Japanese monster culture is that Japanese have the uncanny ability, stretching back centuries, to imagine themselves looking at the world through the eyes of monsters. 
So if you look at no theater in Japan, and I'm not going to recommend you look at no theater. If you think opera is boring, no theater will kill you. But, you know, uh, so this is the, you know, medieval Japanese theatrical form. One genre of no theater is monsters, okay? And what's beautiful about these no plays is they give you the monster's perspective on the world and let you share in the monster's pain. And it's often about seeking Buddhist redemption as part of that process. And I think you see that in Godzilla too. Um, somebody has a question. It says, this person has always wondered why Godzilla, a non-human monster, seems to have found more widespread acceptance among Western audience than someone like Ultraman, who is at least a humanoid superhero. So any thoughts on that? You know, it's really, there are so many interesting uh, issues bound up in this. One of the things that's really interesting is of course, uh, that, uh, you know, for many, many years, uh, Godzilla was actually more popular globally than it was in Japan. Uh, and if you told somebody in Japan that you were a Godzilla fan, they thought you were weird. And they never understood why Americans associated Godzilla with Japan so strongly, uh, because to them, Godzilla was just another sort of cheesy kids film. Uh, but there were franchises in Japan that had become much more successful. And Ultraman was one of them about this giant alien sort of android thing uh, that fights monsters uh, in, in Japan, started in the uh, 1960s, uh, you know, uh, that have become much more successful and Japanese people identify with uh, much more. I think it is actually simply the history that took place here, that Godzilla was the first through the gate. Uh, uh, and it's amazing, actually. There's been a wonderful article uh, written by a scholar named Megan Warner, uh, who compares the Japanese films that were sent abroad in the 1950s. On the one hand, you have uh, art house films like Rashomon, the famous samurai picture that won like all the awards of Cannes and Venice uh, and so forth and played to really elite audiences. And then on the other hand, you have Godzilla, right? Uh, which uh, uh, was had Raymond Burr put in and played in double features and in drive-ins uh, and so forth. And the irony is of course, that Godzilla became really popular right? That Godzilla ended up being the most important property for promoting Japanese pop culture abroad. Uh, and I think it's just uh, uh, that early start that Godzilla got and the fact that from the beginning it was pitched at a mass audience. It wasn't just for sort of cinematic elites, uh, but it was for everybody that that just became what Americans related to in Japanese pop culture. Great. We have time for, I think, two more questions. Uh, so in the original Godzilla, uh, the people who get close to Godzilla tend, they get the radiation poisoning. Um, so this uh, question says, do you think that would be a way to approach Godzilla and the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, I have never uh, indulged myself in writing a screenplay for a Godzilla movie, and yet there's still people who will email me occasionally with screenplay ideas. I, they, they tend not to uh, email the whole thing because they think they'll think they think I'm going to steal it from them and <laughs> sell it in Hollywood or something. But I think you've got something there. I think that could be that could be sort of fun, actually. Uh, so I will say in the chat, you know, there is some really good conversation going on. Team Godzilla, Team Kong, uh, the whole notion of these individual teams is, is fascinating uh, to me. Um, so this, uh, the final question, are there other similar long-running cross-cultural movie series 
that you know of and would recommend? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Japanese cinema is actually filled uh, with movie series. Uh, you know, uh, franchises are a huge deal uh, in Japan. And so, you know, many of the world's longest and oldest film franchises are in Japan, but very few of them have made the leap uh, to uh, 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 American audiences. One reason is because many of those Japanese film franchises are comedic and nothing translates as poorly as comedy, right? Uh, Japanese comedy is not funny even to me, and I speak Japanese fairly well, you know? I just don't have that cultural background to really uh, understand it. Uh, but giant monsters do translate. Uh, so to the extent there are other franchises, from Japan at least, that have made it uh, internationally, uh, 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 there tend to be monster films. So uh, Gamera is probably the other one. And if you haven't seen the giant flying turtle, it is a blast. Uh, pick up a Gamera movie. Uh, there's some that rival uh, uh, Godzilla. Uh, uh, and you know, uh, also, otherwise in world cinema, a lot of those uh, franchises have tended to come out of Europe. Uh, uh, and those, of course, the cultural leap is not so great. James Bond works, you know, uh, in the English speaking world and globally uh, fairly easily uh, uh, in a way that uh, uh, some other uh, series do not. So I am actually going to reserve the last question for myself. What is your favorite Godzilla film? Well, you know, it's like picking your favorite child, I you know? know, it's yeah. hard to do, you know, yeah. because yeah. even ones that for so long I panned, I just went back to watch a movie called Godzilla versus Megalon. And that is really from what is considered generally to be the artistic nadir of the series, you know, uh, when really they were, these movies were produced in the span of about six weeks. Uh, it was a slapdash effort. The special effects uh, were hilarious. The costumes were falling apart. You know, it's a darn clever, fun movie to watch, you know? So even that one, I can't pan. If you're gonna watch one, watch the 1954 original Gojira. It is really thought provoking and significant. I really think it's one of the great movies uh, of world cinema. If you're gonna watch two, watch The Smog Monster because you're not gonna be ready for that. Even with my saying it's psychedelic and mind boggling. It is a crazy movie. Uh, and then I'd say Shin Godzilla number three. Uh, it really is neat to see the way in which uh, this can be, the monster continues to be a powerful metaphor uh, decades after it was created uh, and to have meanings for Japanese politics and society today. Bill, Lisa, thank you both so much for joining us here tonight. Uh, thank you all for joining us here tonight. Uh, we will have another Connected Conversation next Tuesday that looks at the upcoming centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.